Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you today. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter number 8. If you would, please, the book of Acts and chapter number 8. Lots going on this uh, month and next month. I hope uh, you will take advantage of every part of it and be involved in everything uh, that you can possibly be involved with. There are some really exciting days coming up. Uh, I did not mention in the video our pastor's conference that is uh, in between all that. It's in February, February 8th, 9th, and 10th. Be watching your email and your text message this week. If uh, you have links to register for those events, if you want to be involved, you can serve. uh, You can participate. You can just be a part of it. And uh, you won't want to miss it. There's some special moments during the conference. Great preachers. And uh, it's just a fantastic event. Uh, for everyone to be a part of. Today we continue uh, a five-part series that I'm doing to start the year off on core values. And really, I just felt compelled this year to just kind of circle around and refresh ourselves on why we're really here as a church, first and foremost. And then, and then of course, also uh, desired outcomes for you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Basically, what are we trying to do here? What's the big deal? What really matters? If I look at our church and I were to say, I would say we would be a successful church if we were doing these things. I think uh, these five things would be those things, those objectives that I would want to see, both corporately as well as individually. Last week, we looked at the subject of corporate prayer and how that a church that is uh, a, a, a solid church, a Christ-following church, will be a church that prays together. Uh, we've launched several initiatives since then. We will be praying together at the end of this sermon. We prayed this morning with men and women at 8.30. You're welcome to join us. There are wonderful meetings for prayer. Tomorrow morning at 7.30, there's a call uh, to prayer. There's a link that's been sent out to you if you want to join us. We're praying for our missionaries and pastors. And then, of course, I've made myself available for prayer calls on Friday. And anybody that wants to pray, let me know. I'd be more than happy to to take the time to do that with you and your family about whatever needs are going on in your life. So we're going to be praying together. Today, I want to highlight this, and that is intentional evangelism. Intentional evangelism. Any church that is a Christ-following church is a church that shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And I'm not going to today share with you a bunch of events and opportunities that you will have here to do that. I'm going to challenge you that the most important outcome of a disciple is that a disciple is like his master. And there could not be a more compelling display that I am like the master than that I am sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Someone once said, a church that stops preaching the gospel has forfeited its right to to be called a church. Then my question for you is, what does it say about a disciple, an individual that is not sharing the gospel of Jesus with others? Acts chapter number 8, beginning at verse 26, we see one of the most compelling one-on-one gospel conversations in the Bible. And we're going to learn this morning about the importance of valuing every soul and being intentional about our opportunities to share Jesus Christ with other people. Look, if you will, at verse 26 of chapter 8. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, 
Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our desire is to be like Christ. Our desire is to be a people gathered here for worship and scattered from here to be missionaries. And God, may you compel us through your word today to take the challenge, to be burdened, to be active, to share Christ with our community. Give us opportunities and help us to seize those. And God, may we be fruitful in this coming year. Our prayer is that in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was preaching in a youth conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the, the first night of the youth conference was a, an evening where the teenagers of the church had invited their parents for a banquet in which the kids served their parents. And I thought it was a kind of a neat idea. We had a church service first, then they decorated a room really nicely, and the parents all went to this room after the service, and the kids basically served their parents dinner that night. And, and so I, I didn't know they were doing that. I just thought I was preaching to a youth conference. So I went in that night and started preaching a sermon uh, that was really directed to the teenagers. But all the parents of the youth group were, were also there. They were attending. The kids were kind of in the front, and the parents were in the back. And, and I gave, gave the message, of course, gave the gospel. I, I, was, I was giving an invitation at the end of the service to encourage people who had not ever accepted Christ to do so. And I, I noticed while we were giving this invitation that a man in the back responded to the message. And, uh, and when I saw him start to leave his seat to come forward to talk to somebody about his salvation... I also noticed that the youth pastor, a guy named James, was sitting kind of over here on my left, and he was with two middle school Hispanic young, young men that, that, had come, come to, that came to the youth group. And I saw James kind of look down the aisle, and he saw this man walking to him, and immediately James left his seat and started walking kind of up the aisle and met the guy uh, in the middle of the aisle and embraced him, and they exchanged some words. And, and, and before, before too long, James had walked on down the aisle with the man, locked arms in arms, and they, they then were, were here at the, like at the altar, like at these steps, and they were, they were praying together, and they were, they were, they were talking. I, was, I, I could tell by what was going on that James had opened up his Bible. And James was, was, was walking through the Bible with this man. At the same time, I'm sitting back down now, and I'm, I'm sitting right where James was. I'm sitting beside those two boys, probably ninth grade or seventh grade. and they, It appeared they were brothers, and it turns out they were. And I, I'm sitting there. I'm watching James lead this man to Jesus, and I'm standing beside these boys, and they are just weeping with joy because that was their dad. 
These two boys had evidently started coming to that church some years before. And, and, and that church was a church that had bus routes throughout the city. And they would send buses into neighborhoods and pick up children for church. And a lot of times those children, their parents didn't go to church. And they took advantage of getting the kids out of the house for a couple hours. And so these boys now for three or four years have been riding the bus ever since they were in like third and fourth grade. And, and, and later on, after the story was over, I, I, James kind of filled me in with all the details of what had taken place. Those boys had become Christians on one of their first rides to church several years before. And they had come and those people had loved on these boys and told them about Jesus. And it wasn't too long before both the boys had accepted Christ. They'd been baptized in the church. Now they were in church every week. They came to Sunday school. They came to church. And they were finally in the youth group. And the youth group had the opportunity to invite the parents. And the parents up to this point had absolutely no interest. But the kids had been consistently praying and consistently looking for an opportunity to witness to their dad. And their dad had pushed them to the side, had showed no interest in God, no interest in church, no interest in getting saved. And that night, after literally like three years of consistent prayer and faithful invitations and faithful witnessing of those boys, those boys got to see their dad saved right there in that church that night. I want to tell you, it was a fantastic sight to behold. A fantastic sight to watch these boys take the gospel seriously, to plant the seed, to water it with prayer, and to watch God reap a harvest of their own father accepting Christ right before their very eyes. It just reminded me of how special those boys were and how much concern they had for their dad. In fact, their, their, their Sunday school teacher told their youth pastor, James, that every single service, every service, every class when they met together, and the Sunday school teacher would ask for prayer requests. Those boys would say, pray for my dad. My dad's not a Christian. My dad lets us come to church, but he doesn't want to come to church. Will you please pray for my dad? How many of you glad that God heard those boys' prayer and their dad was saved that day there at church? It was an amazing experience. It, it made me think to myself, you know, that, that salvation of that man was very valuable to those kids. But can I say this to you? The salvation of any soul is very valuable to God. But if I were to try to quantify, what, is, what, is it, what does it look like? What it, what, how would you determine the value of something, the value of a soul? Maybe we'd start with maybe trying to take monetary value. Maybe what's the value of a dollar bill? And really, the value of a dollar bill is, is, is completely subjective. I mean, you take a $1 bill in America and you take it down to Haiti and, and it takes 65 Haitian dollars to make one American dollar. Uh, the fact is, uh, in Haiti, a $1 bill is worth a lot more to them than it is to us here. You take that same dollar bill and you go over to Europe where, where maybe it's not as valuable in that context. Of course, you take a dollar bill and depending on, depending on the age of a person. You know, you, you take a $1 bill and give it to a 5-year-old, that's a real big deal. You take a $1 bill and give it to my 15-year-old and it, well, it doesn't last very long at all. You take, you take a dollar bill and you, you, you put it in my pocket. It's really not that big of a deal. The truth is I, I have all the things taken care of that I need. I, I, I have a home. I have a car. I have a place to live. I have food in my refrigerator. One dollar doesn't go very far in the Sam's house, okay? But you take a dollar bill or a couple dollars and you give it to somebody that hasn't eaten today. And they go maybe get a quick bite to eat or maybe a bottle of water to quench their thirst. It just changes. Let me say this to you about 
people, souls, and God. The value of a human soul to God is just, in fact, invaluable. The Word of God tells us that in Mark chapter number 8 and verse 36. It says, whoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The Bible says you can have everything that this world has to offer any monetary value, any home, any car, any, any amount of money in your bank account. But if you lose your own soul, then none of it's worth it. The Bible tells us that what Jesus did on the cross demonstrates how valuable people are to him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, We see Jesus who by the grace of God tasted death for every man. What was the cross? The cross was God providing salvation for every man, demonstrating to us just how valuable you and I are to him. And then we open up our passage today. This passage of scripture that when I read it, and, and it's kind of uh, uh, just the verses I read, didn't seem to display this so much unless you set that story in the bigger story. In Acts chapter number 8, the Bible says that the gospel has gone forth from Jerusalem and Judea and now is starting to circulate as God said it would into the area of Samaria. The primary preacher of that, that mission endeavor was this guy by the name of Philip. And Philip has gone to Samaria, and if you read in the first uh, eight verses or so of the chapter, there is a major, major revival in that city. Literally, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are coming to faith in Christ in the city of Samaria. And the Bible says that this was having a citywide impact because there was great joy in that city. But in the middle of this revival campaign, God is going to speak to Philip, watch this, and tell him to leave the masses in Samaria. To go out into a desert, not to win hundreds of people to Christ, but to win one person to Christ. And folks, listen, we have got to understand that, that in God's mind and in God's heart, there is value in every single human soul. And that same value that God places upon souls, the same value that God puts upon people should be the same value that you and I put on people. In, my, in other words, if it's important to God, it should be important to us. Now I want to share with you three truths that I learned from this story that we should all concern ourselves with today. Number one, I want you to see that God desires the salvation of all people. Let me say that again. God desires the salvation of all people. 1 Timothy chapter number 2 and verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. The word will there, there's, there's actually two Greek words translated will in the New Testament. One is like decreed will, meaning God put it out there and it's going to happen. There's a decreed will. How many of you understand that in that sense, you can't stop what God is going to do or what God wants to do? He is sovereign. He has a decreed will. But there's also a desired will of God. Uh, kind of like this. This is what I want to happen. So in, in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, when it says God will have all men to be saved, it is not his decreed will, meaning everybody's not going to be saved. We know that. But what we do know is this, God wants everybody to be saved. How many of you are glad that you serve a God that wants every single human being that's ever breathed air on this earth, he wants them all to have a knowledge of his salvation? I'm glad for that. 
I'm glad that we don't have a God that picks and chooses and, 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 and designates certain people to heaven and designates certain people to hell. Listen, Fred, God wants every person in the world to be saved. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, how much so? The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Folks, do you realize today that in that context, the Bible is talking about the delay or the tearing of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture? And you say, why is Christ tearing his coming? The Bible tells us. Because some people look at the fact that Christ has not come again yet, that God is delaying his promises. Look, God said he was going to come again, but look, where is he at? I mean, how long is this going to take, right? You know what the Bible says there? The Lord is not slacking. He is not delaying his promise. No, rather, he is long-suffering. He's patient. He wants every, as many people as possible to be saved, to be saved and knowing that his second coming will secure uh, the, 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 the last opportunity for some to be saved. Why has Christ not come back yet? He desires people to be saved. Now in Acts, you see this very plainly. You see that this was his mission. He told the church that this is going to be exactly what they were going to be about. Back in Acts chapter number eight and or one and verse number eight, it says, "And you will be, uh, you will receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses." Folks, I, I don't think we're a church that is biblically illiterate. I think there's a lot of people in this church that you've had some training. You've been around church for a while. Uh, I, I'm amazed at the kind of people that God assembles together in this congregation. I don't think I'm talking to an elementary student church here. I, I, don't th- I think when I say something like the Great Commission, I, I think probably just about everybody in this church knows what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that Jesus Christ, without mincing any words at all, the last thing that Jesus Christ told his disciples that he wanted them to do before he ascended to the Father was he wanted us to scatter from our churches and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Is there anybody at River City Baptist Church that that has any question in your mind that this is what God wants us to do? Absolutely not. And then consider this. Consider just how far God is willing to go to make his message go far. I mean, do you, do you have, like, in the text of Acts, as you start seeing this, this mission unfold, you start seeing that there was enormous persecution that took place. And you read the beginning of Acts chapter number 8, and it was for the purpose of the threats and the persecution that was happening that actually caused the people to leave Jerusalem. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, God not only gave the mission, but God was so passionate about the mission, he was even willing to allow something as drastic and as, and as, and as intense as persecution to get into the church so that the church would scatter and the mission would be carried further. I, I'd like to suggest to you tonight that, that that means to me that God is very, 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 very serious about people getting saved. So, how serious... Are we? How serious are we? Uh, Can I personalize it? How serious are you? There's 24 hours in a day. There's seven days in a week. 
There's 128 hours, or 168 hours, excuse me, in a given week. So since the last time we were here hearing last week's message, at 11.06 a.m. last week I was preaching in this pulpit to most of you that were here last week. From 11.06 a.m. last Sunday to 11.06 a.m. this Sunday, there were 168 hours of time that God, watch this, gave every one of us equally. You ever said, I don't have time for that? Yeah, you do. You got 168 hours of that stuff. And here's the thing. God gave 168 hours of it to me. He gave 168 hours to Stephanie. He gave 168 hours to Hector. He gave 168 hours to Annalise. He gave 168 hours of time equally to every single human on this planet. Now, to be fair, there are several things that are must, that we have to do, that are non-negotiable. Things like work, things like sleep, things like meals. And I think, to be fair, if you averaged in a regular work week, a regular sleep week, and a regular meal week, you could reduce the amount of actual free time, if you will, that you and I have each week to about 51 hours. And to be even more fair than that, to be fair, in your free time, there are other things that are important, like taking care of your health and spending time with your family and doing recreational things and watching the Jaguars win football games, you know, and stuff like that. There's all kinds of, 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 of flexibility. Look, I'm not here trying to suggest that what we should be using every waking free moment of our lives is, is to share the gospel of Jesus with somebody. But, but, I, but could I make this mild suggestion to you today? If there are 168 hours in a week, and, and let's just say I've got 50 free hours to do whatever I want to do. Do you think if the mission of Christ was important to me, I might be able to squeeze one of them in? Maybe? Just think, if this year, starting right now, you gave two hours a month of intentional gospel witness. Two hours a month. Two hours times 12. It's 24. Think about it. With intentionality, you could give an entire day of the next 365 to telling somebody about Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think might happen at River City Baptist Church, or any other church for that matter, if the collective Christians of Jacksonville, Florida, gave one day of the next 365 to telling people about Jesus? I'll just go ahead and tell you what would happen. There would be multitudes of people that would come to faith in Jesus Christ if just we got even marginally serious about what God was serious about. So number one, I want you to see God desires the salvation of all people. We cannot deny that. But not only does God desire the salvation of all people, God cares about the individual souls of every man. Now, folks, listen, it's one thing to say God loves the world. It's another thing to say God loves me. How many of you are glad for that? Look, I love the fact that God loves the world, but I think it is even more meaningful when I say God loves me. I'm glad that he loves the world. That's not hard to understand, but when I think to myself, he absolutely loves me individually, well, that's something to be excited about. Just like the song says, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. And then the tag, Jesus loves even me. And when he leaves, when Philip leaves this place to go out to witness to this one man, 
we learn something about the care of one soul. Now, folks, listen, like I said at the beginning of this message, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, here's the 14 activities River City Baptist Church is doing this year, and you can invite somebody to come. You can invite 10 people to come. You, Man, you can pack a pew or whatever you want to say. And all that's great. That's awesome. But, folks, let me, get, let me give you something a little more personal. Let's focus our attention on an individual Let's focus our attention on one person, just like Philip. He went out to reach one person. What was it about this person? Why did God focus his attention on this one man? I'd like to suggest to you three reasons why. Number one, God knew that this man was wealthy, but he was empty. He was wealthy, but he was empty. Look, if you will, uh, in verse number uh, 27. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a, a, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury. He is a high-ranking government official. He was evidently the secretary of the treasury of Ethiopia. The guy was probably very wealthy, certainly was influential. He had a government high-ranking job. And yet, what do you find? He ends up going to Jerusalem. Now, I believe that he was in Jerusalem for the same reason many people were in Jerusalem, and it was to worship. It's what the text says. It says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we, we, there's no reason to suspect that this guy was actually a Jew. He probably went at hearing all the, the, the stir of, uh, of the Passover and the different uh, celebrations that Israel came back to. But we do know this, we know that he went to worship and we know when he got there, something struck his heart. So much so that he picked up a copy of a scroll of the book of Isaiah and was so interested in what was going on that he was, he was reading it on his way home. In other words, I believe this man came to Jerusalem looking for answers and he left Jerusalem still looking for answers. Why? Because no amount of money, no amount of stuff... No amount of prestige, no job title is going to satisfy you. Ultimately and only Jesus satisfies. I mean, think about this. In the Old Testament, we got the story of Solomon. Solomon was, was by far the wealthiest man that ever walked the face of this earth. He inherited a peaceful kingdom. The, the wealth of his kingdom multiplied uh, after David passed away. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 9 says this, Solomon speaking, So I was great and increased more than all who were before me. Listen to this, verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I kept not back from them. What is he saying? I had an unlimited bank account. I could do whatever I wanted and never worry about money a day in my life. I happened to meet somebody recently, uh, uh, somebody uh, who, who, whose husband passed away and he invented, uh, he had a patent on a particular tool that, that got him basically a royalty on every single air conditioned unit that was ever sold in the world. And he passed away. And his wife became the heir of this wealth. And literally, every day, all day, money gets thrown into this person's bank account in almost unlimited forms. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I'm saying, I don't know how I would handle all that, but I'd sure like to try. Somebody say amen. But here's what we know. You know this from any sport, from any Hollywood film star, from anybody. You all know this without me saying it. Money never has satisfied a man's soul. 
You can have whatever you want to have, but if you don't have Jesus, you do not have the most important thing. This is why Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 17 says, therefore I hated life. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you came into church and maybe you have everything that you really need to get by in life. You are comfortable, you are, you are well-to-do, you have everything that anybody would ever want. But why is there still something in my heart that is missing? Number two, not only was he wealthy, but he was empty. Number two, he was religious, but he was lost. He was religious, but he was lost. He went to Jerusalem to worship. He was either a proselyte or he was interested, we know. But the Bible says he had no knowledge of who he was reading about. He had no knowledge of the answer of his soul. It's like a, it's like a, it was like Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. He was a man who was a religious man. He was a leader, and yet he still did not know God. You know, friends, the Bible says that Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, You must be born again. Please listen very carefully. Church will not save you. Baptism will not save you. Taking the Lord's Supper will not save you. And I got to tell you, I get greatly concerned. The longer I live in this city, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, when I first came to Jacksonville, I remember saying this. I, I, I don't know if I said it to Angie, but I remember, I remember I wanted to go to a southern city. I wanted to go to a metropolitan area. And, and I remember even articulating this to somebody, maybe a couple people. Jacksonville is like last on my list. Because I remember, I remember just always hearing of all the great churches that were in Jacksonville over the last 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. And thinking to myself, if there's a city that doesn't need another church, it's Jacksonville. And then lo and behold, I've been here now almost seven years. And I'm convinced more and more and more and more now than ever that Jacksonville is lost and without God. I mean, people are getting saved at our church after months of attending. I sit down with the average person and say, yes, how do you know? And I start listening to them talk. And I'm thinking, friend, you are no more saved than Donald Duck. I'll start hearing people say, yeah, I go to church. I grew up here. I'm a pretty good person. I've been given my granddaddy or my grandmommy was a pastor. I hear that one all the time. And I think to myself, you're looking at the wrong thing. If I ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? And you say back to me, because I go to church or because I give money or because I am a good person or because I was baptized or because I went through a catechism or because I was confirmed or because I take the Lord's Supper or whatever other sentence includes the word I, that's the wrong answer. There is no I in my salvation. It's only Jesus. How do I know that I'm saved? I'm saved, number one, because I know I don't deserve to be saved. I know I can't save myself, and I know the only person that can save me is Jesus. Search all you want. Attend church all you want. Give all you want. Be as good as you can be. But, friend, you need Jesus Christ in your life. And here he was, religious but lost. Man, i got to tell you. I think I would rather die without God and spend eternity in hell having come out of a jungle in Africa having never heard the name of God than going having heard Jesus over and over again so much that I didn't even know I needed him. Religious but lost. Wealthy but empty. Religious but lost. Finally, he was searching but he was ready. 
I mean, when Philip comes up to the man and starts talking to him and engaging in this conversation, the man's openness is extraordinary. I mean, he frankly says, look, I'm looking. Here you are. I, I don't know. I don't know the answers, but I would like to know the answers. Do you understand what you're reading? No, I don't. How can I? The guy's crying out for the answer. I remember back at the old campus, I just was watching some videos with Brent last night. I don't know how we ended up doing this last night, but we, we all went back in memory's lane. And somehow we were like clicking on pictures and videos from when Brent was a baby. And, um, and, and, then, and then on into like the first you know, year or so that we were here. And I remember when Brent, Brent got saved over our other campus. We were really concerned about this because Brent was only four. Now, you can think whatever you want to think, and that's fine, but I will tell you this. We have never pushed faith on our kids because I don't want any of my kids to ever accept Jesus just because I'm a pastor. But I remember Brent over at the old campus in the old office came up to me, and he was just, he was just asking questions over and over again. Dad, I want to be saved. I, oh, let's talk about it tomorrow. I, I was thinking, we'll talk about it tomorrow, and then you'll forget about it, and you'll go back to playing you know, games or, or guns or whatever you do, and, and uh, you know, whatever, whatever things you're doing it for. And, and yet, he kept pressing in. He kept leaning in. And finally, I, I tried to push him off like five or six times. I mean, he's now hysterical. I mean, crying, looking at me going, Dad, I want to be saved. Why can't I be saved? And finally, I'm like, well, well this, I'd be pretty terrible human. I asked him the right questions, not yes, no questions. I asked him the kind of questions that I'd have to ensure that he could give me the answers that I thought that he understood. Fully convinced that he understood the gospel. Brent bowed his head and accepted Christ as a Savior. I showed, him the, I showed him the video last night of his baptism. His feet couldn't even touch the bottom of the baptistry. I had to kind of hang on to him and his feet were dangling. And I, and I baptized him at the old campus. And, and you know what? You could talk to Brent today. I guarantee you, Brent, tell you what it means to be saved and why a person needs to be saved and who it is that saves him. But I remember after that night, after he got saved, this is exactly I quote, I'll never forget it. After he, after he bowed his head and accepted Christ, he looked at me and said, thanks, Daddy. I wanted to be saved, but I didn't know how. How many people in our community, down your street, at your place of employment, in your family gatherings, at Walmart, wherever you go, could say the same thing. I'd like to be saved, but I don't know how. Well, guess what, friend? That's where you and I come in. So number one, we see God desires the salvation of all people. Number two, we see that God loves the individual souls of all people. But thirdly and finally, God sends us or the church to reach every soul. This is where Philip comes into play. Philip was God's instrument to be sent to tell this man about Christ. Now, could God have sent somebody else? Of course. If Philip would have said no to God, would God have sent somebody else? I guarantee you he would have. But that's not the point. The point is this. A man needed Jesus, and God had a man to tell him about Jesus. And let me tell you how this looks in our lives. You are Philip. And anybody that doesn't know Jesus is the Ethiopian eunuch. As I've said before, you are either a mission field or you are a missionary. And here's something you need to understand. The facts, when you study church stuff and church building and church growth and church evangelism stats, here's what is well documented. Listen to this very carefully. The number one reason why anybody would come to a church is because somebody invited them. 66 people uh, uh, 66% of people said they came to Christ 
as a result of some sort of crisis moment in their lives. Some kind of transition, a divorce, a death of a relative, the birth of a child, some kind of transition. Folks, that ought to make you wake up and think. I know somebody that lost somebody. I know somebody that's going through a hard time. I have a neighbor, somebody I work with that's, that's challenged. Maybe they, they just had a child or, or maybe their parent just passed away or whatever. There's a really good moment in their life for me to step in and say, you know what, this might be a good opportunity for me to tell somebody about Jesus. of people say a church or a member of a church reached out to me, and that is why I came to that church, and that's why I got saved. 87% of people that came to Christ knew a Christian, and 90% of them received a personal invitation. And here's what I love about our church. Our church is so visible, like physically visible, we're going to get some visitors just because we're visible. 50,000 cars drive down this road every single day, I'm told. So that's cool. People see the sign. People see the big white cross. People think, well, I just moved here. I want to go to church. That's awesome. But still to this day, the number one reason that compels somebody to come and compels somebody to accept Christ is because somebody reaches out to them. Now, folks, listen. If we are going to reach our community, it is going to be because we leave our place and go out and share the gospel with people. So I'm going to challenge you. Would you take it upon yourself this year to take it personal, to make it real, and to say to yourself, you know what, by the grace of God, I'm going to reach out to somebody. Hey, put, a, put a time on it. Say, man, I'm going to reach somebody this year. I'm going to reach somebody this month. I'm going to give the gospel. I can't control the results, but I can control whether I'm going to obey God. And reach out and say, man, can you come to my church? Man, can I take you to coffee? Hey, can you read this piece of literature? Can I tell you my testimony? I'm not here to tell you a method. I'm not here to try to lay out some four steps to be a more effective witness. I'm just saying to you, the best thing that can happen is when we take it personal, we take ownership of it, and we get the kind of burden that this man had. I mean, when he got the message, he ran. He went to the desert immediately. When he saw the chariot, he ran to the chariot. He was was after the mission that God had called him to, and so should we. In 1912, a 39-year-old pastor named John Harper boarded the Titanic. He was going on a transatlantic trip to preach at the Moody Church in Chicago. And of course, you know what happened that night as the ship sunk and so did John Harper. When the lifeboats were being loaded on the Titanic, it is said by eyewitness account that John was there directing people onto the few and short supply of lifeboats that they had. And this is what he is quoted to have said. Women and children and unsaved first. Harper, like many others, ended up drowning in the water. As people desperately try to survive in the chilled waters, Harper would swim up to them, freezing cold. And as he swam up to them, he would call out to them, Sir, are you saved? And if they said no, he'd say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. After a while of this, one man said it did not happen once or twice. It happened multiple times that John Harper swam back up to me and said, sir, are you saved yet? 
And he said, no, not yet. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The man said, finally, I got it. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior in a meeting later on after he was rescued, survived, and lived to tell the story. He said, I quote, alone in the night with two miles of water underneath me, I believe I was John Harper's last convert. Wow. What was important to John in the dying breaths of his life? Making sure that others were saved. Man, I hope that's our prayer today. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Boy, I sure hope if you're here today and you're like that Ethiopian eunuch, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Can I implore you to do that today? It's simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. May I encourage you, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, to do what the Bible says, believe on him, and, and call on his name. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you came searching, maybe you are wealthy, but you're empty. Maybe you're religious, but you are lost. Maybe you are confused, but you are searching. Today, right here, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. If you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to implore you and encourage you to do that right there, right where you are right now. By obeying the gospel and believing, just ask Jesus to be your Savior. Right here, right now. Just cry out to God. You can cry out in your heart. You can cry out with your voice. Say something like this. Right now, would you say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. But I believe in Jesus. I believe he died. And I believe he rose again. Today I accept him as my savior. Because he's the only one who can save me. Thank you for loving me. Help me never to be ashamed of you. 